Well, good morning. I'm Danny Martin. I'm one of the leaders here at City on a Hill Church. It's, of course, great to be here with all of you in person and great to be seen by all of you online with us. We hope you'll join us real soon here in person. If you're able, we'd love to see you. In the letter of 1 Corinthians, which we've been going through for a while now, the Apostle Paul writes to the Corinthian church for two primary reasons. First, because just like in kindergarten, they had some tattletales at Corinth. Paul received a report that there was some wild stuff going on and that needed correction. Second, the Corinthians had questions for Paul that they wanted answers to. And there are a few times in the letter where we know Paul is directly answering one of these questions because he says, now concerning that thing you wrote about. The phrase, now concerning, lets us know that Paul is answering their questions. We see the phrase twice in chapter 7, once in chapter 8, once in chapter 12, and twice in chapter 16, six times total in the letter. I mention this because we just finished chapter 8 last week, now we're in chapter 9, but Paul doesn't start chapter 9 by saying, now concerning this thing. He hasn't formally started answering another question that they asked. What that means, then, is that chapter 9 is a natural outflow of what he already wrote in chapter 8. He's continuing the thought. Even though he's not going to talk about food sacrifice to idols, like in chapter 8, there is a key theme from chapter 8 that applies to what he is about to discuss. That key theme carried over from chapter 8 is that in the church, our knowledge, rights, and freedoms must be tempered by Christian love to protect those who are weak in their faith. It's no surprise that an idea like this has a ton of relevance for any conversation, especially one about Christian leadership. Because the world works in certain ways, doesn't it? At school, you do what the teacher says to do. In sports, you do what coach says. At your job, you'd better do what the boss says. That's the way the world works, isn't it? It's how it worked in the first century when this letter was written. It's how new Christians from a Greco-Roman background would have assumed things worked inside the church. It's how the world has always worked. In the first few chapters of this letter, 1 Corinthians, we see that one of the problems in Corinth was factions based on who preferred one leader over another. And Paul, who founded the Corinthian church, was one of the options on this multiple-choice test they decided they wanted to take. But Paul doesn't take to elevating himself over others in addressing this problem. He defends his leadership without denigrating others. Let's read about it together. Find 1 Corinthians 9 with me in your Bible or Bible app. 1 Corinthians 9, while you're getting there, I'll remind all of us how important time with God is to our spiritual development. He wants so much more for us than we can imagine. But we've got to position ourselves to receive from him. And one basic way of doing that is Bible reading individually, with your family, with your friends, with your city group, and of course here with us on Sundays. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting in verse 1. I've got ESV, follow along in whatever you have. He says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. The answers to Paul's questions are yes. Yes, he's an apostle. Yes, he has seen Jesus resurrected. If he's not an apostle in the eyes of some, he should at least be an apostle in the Corinthians' eyes because he founded their church. Their very existence as a church proves his apostolic ministry. Their church is Paul's seal of approval. He says this because there are people judging him in Corinth, and it seems that they judged him because he wasn't exercising his rights as an apostle. He wasn't acting like the world's version of somebody who's in charge. There's an assumption from the Corinthians, based on what's normal in their culture, that a real teacher is going to strut around in robes, dropping wisdom tweets, and charging you for it. They think Paul should be acting like the one in charge, and because he's not, people are saying to each other, Boy, this guy isn't a leader. If he were a leader, he'd be pushing us around, slapping us upside the head, charging us, making sure that we get our money's worth for his teaching. He provides a service. We provide payment. That's how the world works. But Paul said earlier in this letter, back in chapter 2, that he came to Corinth in weakness. And he said that he did this on purpose. Paul came in weakness on purpose so their faith wouldn't be grounded in philosophical arguments or in Paul's intelligence. He did this so their faith would be grounded in the only thing that will rescue any of us, Jesus Christ, crucified and resurrected. There was a bias against weakness in Corinth. It was a city steeped in philosophy and learning, so some were questioning Paul's qualifications based on how he wasn't playing the role that normal leaders did. It's really, really important that Paul corrects this way of thinking. Because guess what? If this is what they think of Paul as a leader, if this is what they think of humility in leadership, what are they going to think about Jesus? Jesus, who came as a baby on purpose, Jesus, who lived a working-class life on purpose, then lived in poverty on purpose, then allowed himself to be executed for crimes he didn't commit on purpose. The Corinthians were on track to completely misunderstand Jesus. There is far more at stake here than authority and people feeling like they weren't getting their money's worth. So Paul throws more rhetorical questions at them, starting in verse 3. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, he means the apostle Peter? Or is it only I and Barnabas and I, Bar, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Again, the implied answers to these questions are yes. 
Paul has the right to be a part of a traveling ministry couple with a wife if he wants. He's intentionally not gotten married or remarried. Bible scholars debate if he's a widower or not. So his attention is fully devoted to Christian ministry. He has the right to food and drink, to be provided for. He has the right to not work for a living, which doesn't mean he has the right to not work at all. It means that he has the right to not have to work a secular job in addition to ministry because ministry is already a job. After all, he says, look at all these other professions that have built-in provisions for the worker. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Who, who serves as a soldier on his own dime even nowadays? You sign on that dotted line, your Uncle Sam gives you all expenses paid trips to wherever he tells you you're going to be going. But it is all expenses paid. You tend your fields, you get to eat from the harvest, you raise flocks, you get milk and wool and meat. When I worked at Panera Bread, I could take home all the leftover bread with me at night if I wanted and make my parents really annoyed. Even the law of Moses has some provision for this. Paul goes on in verse 8. Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. If the animal wants to eat while it's working, let it eat. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? It's ironic that he goes to such length arguing that he has the right to be paid for his teaching and ministry when his point is the exact opposite. He's not trying to get them to send money. He's getting looked down on because he hasn't taken money. We can sort of understand where the Corinthians are coming from, I think. When we, when we lived in Utah, I used to see this sign all the time on, on this all-you-can-eat buffet, but it could also allow you to buy sushi if you wanted at the all-you-can-eat buffet, but the sign always said, half-off sushi. Look, there are some things in life you don't want half-off, okay? This is not a selling point. We're talking raw fish here. I want to pay full price. I want organic, small batches, whole foods fish in an ocean-adjacent state. I do not want buffet-line sushi half-off made by desert people. If something's offered cheap or free, sometimes we think, what's wrong with it? Is this half-off sushi from Utah? What's the catch? Verse 12, nevertheless, we've not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Paul waives his right to be well paid for his work, not because he thinks he's the half-off sushi of apostles. He's a full-price sushi apostle, complete rabbit trail, very tempted to make that the sermon title today, <laughs> full-price sushi apostle. but he's doing all right financially. He doesn't need their money. He has practical work skills, and he's able to make do using them at this time. 
Second, there's a crucial spiritual point to be made that the Corinthians still don't get. This money issue is an obstacle to their spiritual maturity. They need to learn that even if we have freedoms, sometimes Christians must lay down those freedoms for the good of others in the church. Just like Paul said in chapter 8 about food sacrificed to idols. I personally know of some Christian leaders who have financial freedom. And because of this, they work for their ministry for far less than what they could command out in the marketplace. They forego substantial salaries despite being qualified for them. Other leaders I know have tremendous eloquence that would easily turn them into Christian celebrities or megachurch preachers if they wanted. Instead, they choose to serve faithfully and quietly at their local churches. Some leaders I know plan to retire and continue working in ministry for free. And we've got plenty of folks right here at City on a Hill who have waived their consultant fee and offered their expertise to this church free of charge. We benefit from your generosity every single week. These are just some examples of what it means to live out what God is teaching us here in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Verse 13. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. He's most likely referring to the Jerusalem temple here. Verse 14. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So here's Paul's conclusion. Christian ministry is a viable vocation and should be treated like a viable vocation. It is. If I were to deny this, I'd be shooting myself in the foot up here, wouldn't I? But here is a reality that complicates this. Every time we walk outside of these doors and leave the church gathering, we are entering a mission field. We often don't think of it like that, do we? Why would we? This is Minnesota, not the Middle East. But it's true. And there are today pastors, Christian leaders, missionaries who are in parts of the world where the fact of living in a mission field is blatantly obvious to them all the time. Yet being in a place where this is more obvious to them all the time, they are unable to openly live as full-time vocational ministers, even though, biblically speaking, they have the right to. It might be for legal or security reasons, like in many parts of Asia or the Middle East. It might be for more practical reasons, like in, in an inner-city ministry, where a pastor is working for a church and most of the congregation is low income. They can give, but it's, it's never going to be enough to pay a full-time pastor. Or maybe they're in a place where it's very difficult to build relationships with people, non-Christians especially. And so one way of bridging that gap is by taking a secular job. Otherwise, they'll almost never have an opportunity to minister to non-Christians and do those blessed practices that we talk about here. So there are situations where Christian leaders are forced, either by circumstances or some other legitimate need, to do exactly what Paul is saying here to waive their right to earn their living entirely from Christian ministry because there are circumstances higher than the right to earn a decent living. Jesus' mission itself is at times on the line. Verse 15, But I have made no use of any of these rights, 
nor am I writing these things to secure any provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I'm still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? Then in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. Paul says in verse 15, he's not trying to put anyone on a guilt trip about this. He'd rather die than lose the ability to honestly say he's not doing this for the money. In fact, he's so committed to the mission that he's never going to stop doing it. No matter what happens, he's a dog chasing cars. He's got to preach. He met the resurrected Jesus on the road to Damascus, and his life has never been the same. He has the right to be financially supported in his work. We know from the end of the book of Romans that he does exactly this. He seeks monetary support so he can go to Spain and minister. But no matter what, nothing is going to stop him. And then we get to verse 19. If you've been a Christian for at least five minutes, you've read this verse before. You've heard it preached, but remember the context. Paul is free and has rights as a Christian worker, but he is choosing to waive those rights and freedoms for what he perceives at this time is the good of the Corinthian church. So he applies this idea of waiving rights and freedoms for the ultimate good of Jesus' mission that all of us are sent on to, starting in 19. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. Paul waives his leadership rights in order to take the posture of a servant so that he can draw people to Jesus. He purposely puts himself in an inferior role to win them over for Jesus. This is really weird to the Corinthians, but Paul's in good company. Jesus himself is Paul's model. He'll say this about Jesus in his letter to the Philippian church. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, meaning he was willing to let go of it for a time, not that he wasn't God, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here is a great truth that many of us American Christians are largely unfamiliar with. Jesus' mission to the world includes the possibility of individual Christians and of the Christian church as a whole serving from a position of inferiority. When the Christian church attempts to rule by force as part of the power structure, that power often corrupts the church. When the Christian church attempts to rule as part and parcel of the power structure, it becomes a handmaiden to it. Nothing but the Department of Church Affairs, as boring as the post office. In either of these cases, and historically there are examples of both, political power makes the church complacent. Swaths of people identify as Christian, 
because they were raised that way, though they have never been driven to their knees by the living Son of God. The Corinthians were certainly familiar with suffering and hardship, but there were some ways in which they hadn't yet learned how their culture's ideas about power had not yet come under the rule of King Jesus. Verse 20, to the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. With the Jews, Paul has similar sensibilities. He is Jewish by upbringing. They have a shared sense of meaning and origin. 21, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law not being outside of the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. When Paul talks about the law of Christ here, he means Jesus' renewed way of doing things, which is simpler, but also far deeper than the old way of doing things. He's not saying that we should sin if that makes us accessible to people who are living in open sin. We can be with them without participating with them. That's how Jesus did it. That's how Paul does it. But primarily, he's talking about how to tell all people about the good news of the Jewish-born Savior of all humanity. So, Paul adapts his ministry to those of a similar, as well as those of a different ethnic, religious, and social background. Whether they have similar or different sensibilities, Paul honors the values and real truths held by different kinds of people while also calling them to account so that he might win over everyone to Jesus. There are, for example, today, a lot of commonalities between Mormonism and biblical Christianity, and there are also very, very significant differences. When I had the Mormon missionaries over to my house, I didn't offer them coffee. It's against their religion to drink coffee. I also didn't prepare myself a cup of coffee, even though I do drink coffee all the time and spend so much time at Caribou, we we call it Koa West over there. City on a Hill West Campus is Caribou on 42. Come and see me. There's nothing in the Bible that says we can't drink coffee, though, but I forewent it at the time. To the Mormon, I temporarily restrained myself like a practicing Mormon would, but in a way that did not violate my Christianity, so that I might win the Mormon. Paul's method is not to become a complete social chameleon or be a hypocrite and pretend to be something he isn't. His method is to exercise more or less personal freedom within appropriate biblical boundaries as far as it is useful for getting out the message about Jesus. He's willing to do whatever it takes to rescue people, whatever the personal cost, whatever ways in which he needs to dress differently or speak differently, that's what he's going to do if it means lost people will be found and the immature will become discipled. He's mission-minded. He's humble. And the fact that he needs to defend this perspective should alert us that the Corinthians, by and large, didn't share in it. So, we too must share in Paul's self-sacrificial perspective about reaching the lost. There must be a corporate willingness 
as well as a personal willingness to share Paul's self-sacrificial perspective. The church is a complicated organism. There's lots to do at church, lots of reasons. Folks attend one church over another. I reckon everything from theology to the quality of the coffee. And if you don't think church folks could be so picky, we'll just stick around a little longer. You'll see. But Paul called the Corinthians, and God calls us, through Paul's words, to lay down our rights for the good of the church and for the good of the gospel itself. If he calls us to lay down our rights, surely, by extension, he is calling us to lay down our preferences. If that's what's needed to guard the weak and to win over those who don't know Jesus. Is there a part of our culture and upbringing as Americans that has not yet been tamed by the gospel? I say this not as an accusation, but as an honest question. Are there ways in which we are letting our preferences, even our rights and freedoms, hamstring mission, either corporately as a church or privately as individual Christians? Verse 23. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. The ultimate blessing Paul wants to share in is not the ones that come from freedoms and rights as a leader. They're the blessings that come from new life in Jesus and sharing it with others. Living a gospel-centered life and sharing in its blessings like Paul wanted to it might mean laying down rights and privileges and freedoms that we've been told we deserve because we've worked hard or that we possess because we're citizens by birth or that many in this current cultural moment insist to belong to people because of their sense of personal identity. But if you want to live a fulfilled life as a Christian, whether you sometimes fully exercise your rights and freedoms in Christ or at other times lay them down, Live a gospel-centered life. If you want to have a sense of meaning and purpose about your life, live a gospel-centered life. If you want to be right with God, not just after you die, but as you live, live a gospel-centered life. We may have to lay aside desires, rights, and privileges, and that is never easy. It is never cheap. Nothing truly good is. But like Paul's life, we can then live lives full of God's blessings, whatever comes. Let's pray. Father, as we seek to live on mission for you, we acknowledge with trembling that your mission has always been accomplished at a cost. Whether money, whether privileges, comforts, preferences, time and energy, whether our rights and freedoms, whether through the very blood of your son Jesus, your good news has always gone forth hand in hand with sacrifice. Lord, in the ways in which we have failed to acknowledge this, have mercy on us. And by your Holy Spirit, we ask you to change us. We want to live for you and find our true freedom in you and to bless this world through you. We ask that you would do this in us 
in Jesus' holy name. Amen.